But first, the big story that's on lots of people's minds, what are those objects in the sky? And the objects being shot down over North American skies for in the past week, what's going on? Well, to answer these questions and still more answers coming in, and we're waiting for more information, but here is the latest from Canadian Defence Minister Anita Anand on what we do know so far, according to our government, Minister Anand appearing on CNN's This Morning. Well, of course, uh, we move very closely and carefully to make sure that that item was out of the air for the protection of the Canadian population. And at this point, we are not able to speculate on the precise parameters of the object. From the visual that we received, it does appear that the object was cylindrical in nature and smaller than the object that was shot down over the United States eastern coast. But it would be imprudent for me to speculate further at this time until we gather the debris and until we do the analysis. The FBI is involved in that analysis, as is the RCMP here in Canada. We do plan to make sure that we are being fully transparent with the Canadian population and more broadly, we're working with NORAD to make sure that we do a fulsome analysis We have a CP-140 Aurora trying to make sure that we are locating the debris. It's in a very remote uh, part of Canada in the Yukon Territory. The terrain is very rugged. uh, So the insurance that we need to locate that debris is still ongoing. And her comments uh, specifically relate to the one that was uh, shot down over Yukon. So that's just north of our own province. Uh, Kind of interesting at that. Also in her comments uh, that uh, she says we're going to be open with the public about what they do know. Um, Of course, there was a visual sighting, so more of a description than she's uh, really let on. But uh, there is information that we will end up knowing in the next few days. The interesting thing here, I find is we do know the first one that came to our attention was a balloon. The rest of the objects are described as objects. Um, Balloon-like is as close as anyone has actually come to saying they're actually balloons. But who knows? We'll find out more. More is going to have to be discussed, I guess, in the next few days. But what does it all mean? And what does it mean to... Canadian-Chinese relations and human rights and all those type of things. Well, we bring in an expert on that angle. And there is more of a story that we'll be developing under that. Charles Burton is a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute on Canada-Chinese relations and human rights, government and politics of China. All his expertise. Charles, uh, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Bruce. So this is something that uh, we're pointing fingers at this point at China. We uh, uh, do know or we pretty much suspect that China is the only country involved in this. Is that your working thesis or do we think that there might be any other explanation? Well, I mean, certainly the first balloon, um, you know, that certainly was from China. There's no question about it. The subsequent three, including the one which is fallen into Canadian waters in, in Lake Huron, um, we can't say for sure. Uh, they seem to be smaller than the enormous 60-meter tall balloon that uh, 
the United States finally put down off the coast of the Carolinas. But they may be, you know, trying to testing our, our radar or our ability to respond to, um, you know, unidentified uh, aircraft that they are sending into North America. We, you know, it's too soon to say. But in general, I think when you look at these things, you know, these um, dirigibles coming into uh, Canada and the United States, the you know, the police stations reports, the the um, recent allegations of Chinese interference in our election that could have led to uh, the member from Stevenson, Richmond, Kenny Chu, losing his seat because of Chinese um, interference. We can't say for sure because you don't know why people vote, why they vote. Economic coercion, the hostage diplomacy, you know, it all comes down to uh, the PRC's, China's just complete disregard for Canada's territorial judicial and political sovereignty, I guess you'd say. You know, it's just everything points to the idea that, that China is able to challenge us quite effectively, interfere in our territorial integrity, interfere in our political processes, seemingly spy on our on our universities and, you know, institutions that are developing sensitive military technologies with impunity, and Canada doesn't seem to be able to do anything about it in any sort of meaningful way, except, um, you know, with some assistance from the United States. So, you know, it's a pretty it's a pretty chilling idea that, I guess, neglect of our defense uh, over decades is now coming back to haunt us, and that China clearly sees Canada as a as a weak link in the um, in the Atlantic Alliance, and and uh, seems to be able to operate pretty freely here without consequences for them. You know, it's interesting because, as you rightly point out, it's not just one thing. We're talking about this in terms of defense now, but uh, we have also been talking about in the last week uh, interference in Canadian elections. Sam Cooper uh, had a great piece on that, and uh, boy, that goes back six or seven years that we actually knew of a memo going right to the prime minister warning about that. And we've uh, we've heard so many different uh, levels of interference, be it from these police stations set up across the country. Are these things just coming to light now, or is the government uh, in China, the uh, the People's Republic of China, are they ramping up efforts? Well, I think that you know, there's no question that the government of China is putting more work. Uh, more money and resources into what they refer to as united front work. You know, the the leader of China, Xi Jinping, has said that the the Chinese Communist Party has three what he called treasures of the Dharma. You know, or magic weapons, which is party building, the armed struggle, and united front work. And united front work is really about um, dissembling on the intentions of the Chinese Communist regime and seeking to neutralize any voices which challenge what China is is saying. So, you know, that's a a major part of the problem. Um, I think that I think the people who are working at the base levels in our intelligence services are getting more and more fed up with the lack of uh, forthcomingness from our government. You know, we've had um, the reports by Sam Cooper, the idea that China interfered in the election campaigns of 11 candidates and had placed 13 agents of the Chinese regime in the offices of members of parliament. 
Oh, there's a there's a front page story in the Globe and Mail today of a leaked CSIS report talking about how um, the uh, CSIS had spoken to the Prime Minister about um, the campaign co-chair for uh, a Canadian Cabinet Minister, Mary Ng, Michael Chan, that he has uh, alleged ties to uh, Chinese diplomats and people that CSIS has identified as being agents of the Chinese regime to do this United Front work. So, no more and more is coming out. These allegations have not been proven, but Parliament is looking into it more and more in the Special Committee on Canada-China Relations that's been uh, exploring, uh, you know, improper activities by the Chinese government in Canada. And most recently, the Procedures and House Affairs Committee of the um, House of Commons, which is doing an investigation of foreign influence in elections. So far, the government's quite defensive about this, but you know, I think that Canadian public opinion suggests that uh, most Canadians believe that the Chinese regime has improper um, activities in Canada and wants our government to take action. If that means declaring uh, Chinese diplomats in Canada persona non grata or bringing agents of the Chinese regime to be accountable in the court of law, I think that's what Canadians want. And I think the government has to... Um, respond to that, even if it reflects badly on perhaps the lack of uh, attention and policy that the government has placed to the earlier allegations of, of this. So, you know, we've known about it for a long time. And as Bruce Plankett in for Mike Smith, just before the break, we were talking with Charles Burton about these uh, latest uh, shootdowns of Objects over North American skies started with uh, off the Carolinas, uh, the balloon that was eventually shot down after taking a good trip, a nice little sojourn uh, right across a good swack of North America before it was taken out. And subsequently, we've had uh, various other objects uh, spotted and taken out by NORAD command uh, planes, fighter jets. Um, and uh, we still don't know much about them. Uh, we're assuming, many of us, that they are Chinese, uh, but we don't know, uh, in fact, if they were. But uh, that's where the smart money is. Charles Burton, uh, you know, that on top of all the other things that you and I were talking about before the break when it comes to these police stations uh, set up by the People's Republic of China in uh, in Canada, and uh, we also have, um, you know, interference in our Canadian elections going back with a memo six or seven years ago to the prime minister. Uh, how far can we go with it just being ignored? Why is it being ignored by the federal government? What do you think? Well, I think that there's quite a strong China lobby um, in the senior levels of government and you know, there's indications that there are people who are receiving benefits from China. You know, we know, for example, that Jean Charest um, was on a retainer from Huawei that he had not been forthcoming about uh, when he was, you know, mobilizing opinion in favor of, of Huawei a while back. And I think what we really need is um, legislation like the Australian Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act where people who are in positions of trust, if they are recipients of benefits from a foreign state, should have to declare it. And I think that that's worked quite well in Australia in, you know, preventing people from receiving money from a foreign state and then uh, 
you know, acting in the interests of that state when they should be acting in the interests of the country that they are getting their proper salary from. So, you know, that that idea has been floating around for a while. Um, certainly in the most recent uh, meeting of the Canada-China Committee in Commons, uh, Minister Mendicino said that they're thinking about it, but they need to do consultations and there's worry that this would lead to racism. But, you know, I think that for me and most of my Chinese friends, you know, I I, I speak Chinese at home. Um, you know, we don't <coughs> buy this idea that cracking down on, on Chinese malign activities in Canada is equivalent to racism against Chinese Canadians. You know, it just seems to be uh, uh, a way to try and uh, and make mainstream society back off from doing the right thing, which is to protect our security and sovereignty against incursions by the Chinese state, whether it's balloons or or placing people into MPs' offices who are, um, you know, responding to directions from the Chinese embassy. Charles, uh, do you think it alleged. perhaps has nothing to do with racism, but uh, more to do with uh, if you uh, start to take a hardline action, you're cutting off a source of campaign funding, um, and maybe that uh, is not readily available from other sources. Those nice dinners uh, that are put on by different uh, charity organizations um, start to interfere with that, and uh, boy, you don't have the uh, the coffers to go into an election with. Yeah, I think that. I mean, I think we have to look at that very seriously, as. As we know, there were some uh, um, uh, suggestions that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau had been receiving uh, donations that might have been connected to the Chinese government because uh, at one event he had in Vancouver, there was a representative of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, uh, which is um, you know the main agency for China's international united front work present. And he couldn't give money to the Trudeau campaign, but he did coordinate a donation to the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation. Did indeed. There's so much more to talk about, and I hope to uh, have you back on, because I don't think this story is going away. Caught by the clock a little bit, but thank you so much for joining us, Charles. Good to speak with you, Bruce. Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Well, tens of thousands of people we know died in that 7.8 earthquake, the uh, Turkey-Syria quake last week. And it's understandable that it makes headlines not just because the death toll continues to rise, but also because when you have a situation like this, it is an international crisis. And I think it makes even bigger headlines for those people around the world who live in earthquake zones. British Columbia being one, the Pacific Northwest uh, being uh, being one of those uh, earthquake zones where we stand by and we wait for a big one to happen at any time. While well, the Turkey-Syria quake was caused by a couple of plates sliding past each other in that horizontal motion, uh, that, from my understanding, is similar to what uh, could happen right here in British Columbia and parts of the Pacific Northwest. But to bring in or to talk a little bit more about the possibility and the likelihood of that, and if we are prepared for that type of earthquake, let's bring in John Clegg. He's a professor emeritus at Simon Fraser University, a well-known researcher in the area of earthquakes. Uh, Good morning, John. 
Good morning. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Well, it's a pleasure to speak with you, too. And every time we hear of these major earthquakes, I think it circles back to a question for us. Uh, can it happen? Can it happen? Can it happen? And I don't think it really gets old because the answer certainly is, yes, it can happen. But is it going to happen to that extent that we're seeing where tens of thousands of people died? And that's, I think, where we want to start the conversation, John. Okay. Well, a short answer to that is no, we will not experience that catastrophe. Um, We do live in earthquake country, and I don't want to deny the fact that we can get a damaging earthquake here, but there's a bunch of factors that really distinguish uh, the situation that occurred in Turkey from what might happen on our coast, which I can kind of walk you through. Yeah, let's talk about that because uh, the death toll is uh, just uh, astronomical. We know that. And I mean, uh, I heard over the weekend 50,000, but we know that's even going to be low. Um, So what are they dealing with and uh, why is it so bad over there? Okay, well, firstly, um, you know, Turkey is a very earthquake-prone country. Um, They've had many uh, damaging earthquakes uh, that have caused large loss of life. Um, As recently as 1999, about 17,000 people were killed in Izmit, which is a city um, east of Istanbul. And um, this particular fault that ruptured, it's very much like the San Andreas Fault in California. As you mentioned, the plates are, uh, the area is a plate boundary, and the plates are sliding horizontally past one another. At least they're locked together, but when you get an earthquake, the fault ruptures, and they just undergo this rapid horizontal motion. And that produces a strong ground shaking. So... In effect, you know, they have cities of 2 million people or more um, that live kind of right in this fault zone or very close to it. There's one city that was only 30 kilometers away from uh, the epicenter of that 7.8 earthquake. The other factor um, is that, uh, you know, the buildings in Turkey apparently are not have not properly been built. There are tens of thousands of steel concrete buildings and others that fell down, collapsed, pancaked during this earthquake. Um, I don't think we would see that in Metro Vancouver, um, even under a very strong earthquake, because we have very strong uh, seismic provisions in our building code. And um, they are followed meticulously, as far as I can tell, by engineers and builders. Um, So our buildings are going to be more uh, resistant than those in Turkey. Now, Turkey does have seismic provisions in their building code, but it's emerging that basically there were tens of thousands of buildings that were exempted from following them. And these are buildings that have are very, very recent. Some of them were built in 2019, 2020, and they collapsed. So I think we're seeing a problem with uh, corruption at at least a local or regional level where, um, you know, the rules that protect people were ignored. And we would we don't see that. So they took shortcuts. In British Columbia. Somebody took shortcuts and uh, didn't do the full job. Exactly. Um, And the other factor is uh, we don't have a San Andreas fault at our doorstep here. We do have a plate boundary, um, and that is what is kind of the 
underpinning for uh, earthquakes in this area. But our big plate boundary, the subduction zone, is 200 kilometers away from Vancouver. It lies beneath the ocean floor in the East Pacific. And yes, we can get very, very large earthquakes, apparently magnitude eight or nine earthquakes, but the epicenter or the sources are quite far from Metro Vancouver. And a factor of earthquakes is the energy uh, drops off or attenuates as you move away from the epicenter. So we're far enough away that we wouldn't have that catastrophic damage. We would have damage, but it wouldn't be like what happened in Turkey. So we have those, and we have our local earthquakes, our smaller earthquakes that are closer into our cities. We really worry more about those than we do about uh, the subduction zone or magnitude 8 or 9 earthquakes because they're more frequent and their their epicenters can be closer to one of our large cities. Well, this so that's, is that's where very our, much our hazard lies. John, uh, good news. Uh, that uh, we may not be at the same risk for that major catastrophic uh, earthquake. But when we start talking about the smaller earthquakes, we probably have some things that are at risk. And if they're not the buildings, because our building codes are better, and presumably we follow the rules a little bit better than what happened over in Turkey and Syria, um, what is at risk if you take a look at even the south coast? Sure. And uh, yeah, again, I don't want to diminish the threat of, uh, you know, a smaller earthquake, uh, a magnitude six or seven earthquake close to Vancouver would be disastrous. Um, And buildings that would be impacted, uh, for example, are the older buildings that we have, say, in Gastown, uh, maybe even some of the newer buildings in in the downtown core that were built 50 years ago. They're newer (laughs) than the Gastown structures. Um, But we are making strides in seismically retrofitting a lot of the infrastructure we have in this city. Uh, The bridges in particular and the schools in particular have been seismically retrofitted. Um, Critical infrastructure has been a priority. Um, Now, when you deal with a much larger body of buildings that are old, that's hard to do, and it's very expensive. Seismic retrofitting is inherently expensive. So this is a ongoing process. Uh, we can hope that we don't have a magnitude 6 or 7 earthquake close to Vancouver um, before we can kind of complete that process probably in several decades. Well, absolutely, and completing the process is a matter of time and You know, we never know when the quake is going to come. Uh, Speaking of that, uh, every time I drive through the Massey Tunnel, I still wonder uh, if that is completely uh, safe, if there was something uh, along the lines of even a a high six or uh, close to a seven. That's a good question because that's one of the two places I always think earthquake, earthquake, earthquake is when I drive through the George Massey Tunnel. Um, And that was built so long ago and that it is a vulnerable structure. Um, And I would say it's pretty vulnerable in a magnitude six or seven earthquake um, because it sits beneath the Fraser River. It's basically the Fraser River goes over the top of it and it lies in, it's been embedded in what we call liquefiable sediments, sediments that can actually turn to a fluid when they're strongly shaken during an earthquake. And we saw 
that on a large scale in a magnitude 6.3 earthquake in Christchurch back in 2012, I believe it was, liquefaction on a very large scale on Delta Plains, such as we have uh, that Richmond sit on and Langley and parts of South Surrey. So, you know, I do worry about those areas because even a magnitude 6 or 7 earthquake can produce widespread liquefaction um, if the shaking is strong enough and long enough. John, uh, you know, do we, well, we've got so many priorities when we talk about budgets, but do we spend enough money and time, do you think, at the government level uh, dealing with earthquake readiness? When I put my uh, earth science hat on, I say no. Uh, When I look at it from the perspective of a politician, I kind of say, well, geez, we have a lot of issues on our plate. You know, we can't spend all public funds that we have available to us on earthquakes. Um, You know, we have an opioid crisis. We have homelessness. We have a lot of very pressing social issues that we have to deal with. So I'm of mixed, I have mixed feelings about that. I think the government has done a fairly good job of uh, bringing our infrastructure up to speed. Um, as a earth scientist and someone who knows about earthquakes, um, I would hope we'd spend more, but, uh, you know, I kind of, like I say, have two minds of that. That's a very fair and balanced answer. I appreciate that. Uh, John Clegg, thanks for uh, spending time with us uh, this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. Bruce Clegg, it in for Mike Smith. Well, it is 2023, and has it taken this long for the robot overlords to take over? We've heard uh, stories, a lot of them, in the past week about ChatGPT. That's the chat bot launched by OpenAI back in November. But it uh, has now passed the threshold for the U.S. medical licensing exam to become a doctor, scoring B on the final exam. And that raises the question, can it take over, you know, your job, my job, ChatGPT? Is it uh, the future? And do some people have to worry? Well, some experts say the answer to that is a bit more complicated. So let's get closer to that. Anil Verma is a professor emeritus of industrial relations and HR management at the University of Toronto. Very good morning to you, Anil. Good morning. Um, Got to start with that one question. Uh, are we, uh, are we, the mass public, uh, in need of worrying about our jobs? Well, my view is that not just yet, but changes are coming. Uh, okay. And I love that pause, that pause where you think, well, how are we going to break it to him and, uh, and say, yeah, changes are coming. So let's talk about that a little bit. What are the changes? What can we expect? So, you know, two things we should keep in mind in respect of new technology, uh, which is not new in itself because we've had tech change for the last hundred years. You know, every decade we see new technologies. We saw computers come in a big way in the 60s and the personal computer in the 80s the web in the 90s, and so forth. And we have more jobs today than ever before. So we will have plenty of work, at least in my lifetime. But 
these jobs will be different from the ones that existed a generation ago. You okay. know, many give, of me give me an example. Give me an example. Well, take, for example, the, the job of a taxi driver. Uh, there aren't so many taxis anymore because we have Uber and Lyft. And soon we will have self-driving cars. So there you see, or if you look at the telephone operator in the old days, or by that I mean in the 90s, uh, Bell Canada, Rogers, they still had hundreds if not thousands of telephone operators. Most of those jobs are gone. But we have lots of communication services and lots of jobs in that industry. So is ChatGPT just an ongoing continuum of the, uh, of the change that we're already seeing in jobs morphing? It's not a complete continuum in the sense that uh, the pace of tech change is, uh, is becoming more rapid. And we have these technologies that are self-learning. So we talk about artificial intelligence. This is the very first real example of uh, what artificial intelligence is going to be like. And we are in a very, very early stage of this technology. So think of the PC, the personal computer, circa 1980. Uh, There was a lot of buzz, but we had no idea how personal computers will change our jobs, our lives, how many of us will have it. There was a bold prediction that as many people have calculators, pocket calculators in 1980, the same number would have personal computers in 10 years' time. And that was a bold prediction because very few of us could relate to it, but it happened. So Chad GPT and its ilk are going to be introduced and converted into products, which we haven't seen yet. We don't know how ChatGPT will be incorporated. The very first product Microsoft has is to incorporate this into search. No jobs will be lost because of that. We will see a growth in jobs because there'll be a lot of applications and people who learn to use it well will be in demand, you know, their skills will be needed. But what happens to uh, that human side, like emotions and personality and nuances, are those disappearing then? No, not quite. I think that we as human beings, we are way more creative than we give ourselves credit for. So we will find new ways to enhance that. Take Take the example of photography. You know, when when cameras came in, Many painters thought that was the end of uh, artwork. And it is Bruce Clackett in for Mike Smith. And I'm just reaching for my moderator's hat because we do have a interesting debate of sorts coming up in the next few minutes. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting because the two guests that we have and knowing a bit about both of them, uh, they're very smart, they're very well-researched, and very passionate people. Uh, they know their stuff when it comes to any topic that they ever tackle. But this, is, this one is so divisive when it comes to both their opinions, but for people on the whole. 
What I'm talking about is a ruling from the Supreme Court of B.C. back in the first uh, week of this month. When a judge ruled against a Vancouver woman whose face was bitten by a friend's dog at a dinner party. And the judge found that the dog owners could not have known that the animal would attack and thus were not negligent. That was the ruling. The judge found the owners of the dog um, were not required to pay any damages to the victim because of that lack of negligence. But this also comes amongst many other stories we've all heard about pit bulls as a breed over the years and various different attacks. Uh, Not the only breed, but uh, it begs the obvious question, is there a need for stricter rules when it comes to dangerous dogs, bylaws? Well, supporting that, uh, that call would be Bill Thielman, who uh, does believe that there is a need for stricter dangerous dog laws and even goes as far as supporting a pit bull breed uh, ban, a ban on the breed of pit bulls. You know, that's uh, that's quite a stance. On the other side, there's Rebecca Bretter, who is an animal rights lawyer, well-researched. That's her bread and butter is uh, representing the rights of animals and those who have owned the animals and does not believe that there is a uh, a need for such a ban on the breed whatsoever. Um, well, good morning to both of you. I, I think I've set this up and I'm hesitating a little bit because I know both of you uh, do know your stuff, but I'm hoping that you're going to be respectful in here, but uh, let your passion come out. Well, thanks so much for that very kind introduction, Bruce. I really appreciate it. But let me just clarify that lawsuit that you were just talking about, the recent one that came out. uh, That had nothing actually to do with the pit bull breed. The dog in question had nothing to do with even having a mix of a pit bull. So just to clarify that. But somehow this turned into a pit bull debate. So here we are. Okay. Uh, Bill Thielman, good morning to you. Morning, Bruce. Morning, Rebecca. Uh, when it comes down to dogs, pit bulls or not, uh, I think what we end up talking about is dangerous dogs. Uh, is it not, Bill? It is uh, definitely, Bruce. But unfortunately, the situation is, uh, and the latest statistics that I've uh, researched, uh, 62 Americans killed by dogs, three Canadians killed by dogs in 2022, and pit bulls were responsible for killing 41 of those 60. Five uh, people who lost their lives thanks to dog attacks. And uh, we regularly see this. We've seen it, and, and Rebecca and I have debated it before. Uh, we regularly see serious pit bull attacks here in British Columbia, sometimes fatalities. Uh, we'll have a debate. Um, I'm afraid politicians are afraid of this issue completely, but not uh, in here in British Columbia and Vancouver, but not elsewhere. Winnipeg has had a ban on pit bull breeds for ages. Uh, the U.S. military, if you can believe it, Bruce, a place where a military base it's a place where people carry guns around, bans pit bulls as pets. You're not allowed to have a pet on a military base anywhere in the United States because they're too dangerous. And the stats show why. It's, it's overwhelmingly pit bulls when you look at the fatalities, attacks. And that's not just, but those are fatalities on human beings, uh, often children and the elderly. But the, we also see a number, large numbers of, of smaller dogs killed by pit bulls because the, the, this is a breed that's bred to fight and kill. And that's, that's what they've done over generations and generations of breeding. And so that's the reason why I say this, is a, this particular breed is one that really is too dangerous to, to have out in the public. Okay, Rebecca. 
Well, I'd love to challenge uh, the statistics that Bill is mentioning and where he gets them from. And, and I believe he gets them from an organization called dogsbite.org, which is basically an American-based lobby group run by an attack victim whose only agenda is to ban what it considers to be dangerous breeds, including pit bulls. So I get, I'll get to that in a moment. But the two main reasons why I'm absolutely against banning the pit bull breed is, one, it's unenforceable, and two, it's because it's based on fear-mongering, unreliable data. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The reason why it's unenforceable is because, and I'll give you an example. Let's say the Burnaby are one of the cities close to us, right, for those who, who aren't totally aware of our Tri-City or uh, Metro Vancouver. Uh, Burnaby is a suburb, and it has breed-specific uh, legislation that tries to restrict the pit bull breed. And what it says is that it defines the vicious dog as a Staffordshire Terrier, an American pit bull, or any dog that is generally recognized as a pit bull or pit bull terrier and includes a mixed breed with predominantly pit bull characteristics. Well, what the heck does that mean? Is that a bull mastiff? Is that an English bulldog? Or how about a boxer mixed with lab? It just saying that something looks like something else, in my view, is a very, very poor basis for a law. And what we do know is that the UK banned, I'll give you another example, UK banned pit bulls in 1991. However, the number of people admitted into emergency rooms for treatment of bite wounds remained actually the same following the ban. And this is coming from peer-reviewed scientific data which means that it was scrutinized for proper analysis, methodology, and conclusions. Similar thing for, well, actually, for Ontario, I'm not aware of any scientific peer review data on that. Ontario has a pen on pit bulls, but I'm not aware of any reliable scientific studies that show that dog bites have gone down. So all that to say that, first of all, BSL, breed-specific legislation, is unenforceable. It's too general. Now, the more I think the more important part to all of this is that when we're debating this issue, we need to get the facts and the true evidence out there, not from some lobby group that has an agenda. But let's look at, at what do scientists say, those who have actually published in peer-reviewed journals. And there are a number of them. There's actually a very recent one from last year in 2022 published in Science Journal, where it, it determined that breed does not predict behavior. They surveyed over 18,000 dogs of different breeds, and they sequenced the DNA of over 2,100 dogs. And what did they find? The breed offers little predictive value for individual dogs. The American Veterinary Medical Association, these are veterinarians, in 2014 published, again, in peer-reviewed scientific journal that breed does not predict behavior. And, and for, for similar reasons as this recent one, and the main reason there was that the, the reason why breed doesn't predict behavior is because there's, although, you know, there are some traits that overall may be similar within a breed, there is so much variation within okay. the breed. Let's hold it there, Rebecca Bretter, and I, uh, I'm not going to be uh, holding everything exactly to time, but I'm going to try to keep it in my head because, uh, you know, I'm just not following any rules here. But uh, <laughs> but but I'm going to do my best here. Um, Bill Thielman, uh, some very good points there. What do you say about that and about the research and uh, the lobby group and the numbers and where they're coming from? Well, there's, there's tons of research, and in fact, I'm looking at a different website, animals24-7.org, which also does but both that and dog, dogbites.org, 
they actually document these attacks with media reports. So they'll they'll report if CKNW or the Vancouver Sun reports a, a pit bull attack, they'll cite that. They'll have a link for it. So anybody can go to those websites, read these horrific stories. And <clears throat> the facts of the matter are, uh, dogbitespot.org did a, a very long piece of research, 15 years from 2005 to 2019, 521 Americans died from dog bite injuries, 66.4% were from pit bulls, 346 deaths. Um, not involving pit by Rottweilers were another 9.8%. Uh, the, the, a number that were not involved, either different breeds or uh, in, unclear or different breeds that involved were, were 24.8%. But it's, it's really clear. Pit bulls, Rottweilers, and after that, there's, some, there's a few cases of Huskies and, and American Bulldogs, German Shepherd, mixed breed. But overwhelmingly, 66.5%, uh, it's pit bulls. And if you want to, you know, you can argue those, but this, these are cases that have been documented by the media, been reported by the media. And so I think it's pretty obvious. And when you see as I said before, U.S. military bases, uh, Rebecca mentioned Ontario as well, Winnipeg, which I think has banned them since 1990. Uh, they haven't done that for no reason, if it, if it didn't work, uh, number one. Number two, it just beggars the imagination because anybody who sees a pit bull attack, has seen reports of it, knows pit bulls have a disproportionate level of violence. They have some of those powerful jaws short of a shark um, uh, in the world, and they cause enormous damage. Look, look at some of the reports of orthopedic surgeons who've talked about children with their scalps bitten off, with arms and legs missing, um, not to mention the fatalities, just the horrific level of violence that a pit bull attack does. And so, you know, I don't, maybe, maybe Rebecca and I can find some common ground on measures that would at least minimally have pit bulls um, muzzled in public and, and severely licensed in a way that they could not run free. Because the latest case I have saw, and I think I sent it to you, a terrible case in July in Calgary, an 86-year-old woman in her garden attacked by two random pit bulls raging in, or sorry, three, I should say, raging in and uh, killing this poor woman, 86 years old, minding her own business, and they come flying in and attack her for no apparent reason, which is another common element of pit bull attacks. We've had it over and over. We had another one where 21 people injured in Missouri um, in a schoolyard, three teachers and, and 18 kids, again, playing in the playground, and these pit bulls rage in and just cause mayhem on the schoolyard. Okay, so sorry, these things I keep happening, and, and Rebecca can say there's yeah. no bad dogs and they're not dangerous, but they keep injuring and killing and maiming people. Okay, let's no, let Rebecca not. jump in here, and right. then we're, we're going to have a lot of calls on this. I know that, so sure. I want to have a chance to get to the calls and then take some uh, calls from people. Rebecca. Sure. I'm not saying that there aren't any bad dogs. There are good dogs and bad dogs within any breed. But let's just be clear. This dogsbite.org organization that Bill keeps getting his statistics and evidence from, the way this group research is, the way they do their research is they, like Bill said, they comb through news and media reports to show, to try to show that pit bull attacks are at higher rates. So they basically just go through media reports and then present those media reports as quote unquote studies or statistics. Personally, when I try, if I were to take, let's say, a case like this to court where I'm debating a pit bull ban, I would be a negligent lawyer if I based my facts and my evidence on an organization like dogsbite.org, that's a lobby group. Instead, I would be presenting evidence that's based on facts presented and put together by scientists who have scrutinized each other and have published reports in peer-reviewed journals. 
And so when it comes to things like biting power, what, what essentially Bill was getting at, like that pit bulls have this enormous biting power. Sure, they're strong. I'll give them that much. But what, what actual to, Canadian Veterinary Journal, just as an example, in 2008, came out with a study. Again, peer-reviewed evidence, not some organization that's putting together some media reports. And what they found, they analyzed dog bites uh, related to human deaths in Canada between 1990 and 2007. 28 people reported killed during that time. Only one of those involved a pit bull. Bruce Plaggett in for Mike Smith. And we've been talking with Bill Thielman, president of Westar Communications, and Rebecca Bretter, who's an animal rights lawyer. Two people on two different sides of the question of whether there should be a ban on pit bulls. Got a number of phone calls. We'll try to keep all the phone calls to 30 seconds or less, and we'll still not get through all of them. And we'll start with Bill because uh, he had uh, he was in need of the next response to this. But let's go to Vancouver's Pat. Pat, what do you think? Should there be a ban on pit bulls? I'm allowed to own a firearm in this country, but I cannot own a fully automatic submachine gun. The reason I can't is because they're so dangerous. So we ban certain types of guns because they're so dangerous. And we and I... Oh, you kind of uh, went there, but I think we know what we're getting at. Bill, but that's kind can. of your argument, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. There's There's some dogs that are just... You wouldn't walk around... Uh, go hunting with a with a machine gun or something because it's way too dangerous and and uh, part of the problem though is that it's hard to know with pit bulls not every single one of them is absolutely going to attack somebody but we've seen way too many cases of a family pet attack a child uh, just because the the pit bull went uh, off its rocker basically and attacked a, a young kid. Rebecca and, Bretter, and so what these uh, are with trusted family pets? The sure. pet wasn't abused. It's not a rescue dog. It's not trained to do that. But it's just in the breed. Rebecca, Again, I, yeah, I really question where Bill is getting these these numbers from because where I'm getting these numbers is from peer reviewed scientific data. So there are two studies from UBC, 2005, actually there are more, but two under, like, just from top of mind, 2005 and 2018, again, published in Canadian Veterinary Journal or, and in the Animal Welfare Journal. And what they say is that breed and the pit bull specifically is not a predictor for dog bites. They review data, as an example, one of these data from the city of Calgary, which is meticulous with keeping records on dog bites. And what they found is that 17% of the reported dog bites were German shepherds versus only 5% uh, were involving pit bulls. We're only going to get a chance to have one more phone call in. Let's keep it very tight. Nancy in New West, what do you think? I think that um, dogs are like people. They have different temperaments. You really have to watch the way they were brought up. I met my first pit bull before I heard the stories about how nasty they could be. The only thing vicious about that dog was his tail. Uh, He was absolutely loving and kind, but when my brother-in-law picked him out, he picked the most gentle puppy in the litter, and he was well-trained. I have a uh, pit bull living across the street, the gentlest dog you could ever imagine. I grew up next to uh, rather, or not grew up next to a huge dog, but my next-door neighbor had a huge dog. That dog responded to hand signals. Okay, Nancy, I appreciate that. Uh, Nancy in New Westminster and all the other people who tried to phone in. As you can see, emotions are high, experiences uh, vary from person to person.